This is an ABC podcast. Kangaroo Valley is a famously lovely part of southern New South Wales. When Danielle Selemeyer came there to see the property that she now lives on, she instantly realised she wanted to grow old there and die there. Soon Danielle found herself naming all the living things around her, the animals and even the trees. It was a mark of her enormous enthusiasm and affection for the land in which she was living. And then one insanely hot and dry year followed another and another and another. And in 2019, catastrophic fires broke out across Australia, from southeast Queensland all the way to Kangaroo Island in South Australia. On New Year's Eve 2019, Daniel looked at the temperature as it hit 46.5 degrees Celsius, and she thought, that can't be right. As Danielle and her partner watched the black summer fires surge closer to their home in Kangaroo Valley, she became astonished by the apparent willingness of all too many people to look away and to hope or pretend that the Australian summertime could continue as it always has, that it could be a season of fun and pleasure and relaxation and that the enormity of the climate crisis could be wished away. Danielle's book, From This Time, is simply called Summertime. Hi, Danielle. Hi, Richard. You're not a farmer, I should hasten to add. You're a philosopher and a professor at Sydney University. What was the thinking that made you and your partner decide we're leaving the city and going to the country? My grandparents and my parents, as I speak about in the book, were survivors of the Shoah of the Holocaust. And my grandfather, Isaac, was a remarkable human being. Sadly, he died uh, when I was 15 before we had an opportunity to have some of the conversations I wished that I had had with him. But when I became an adult, I realised the extent to which he had lived for future generations. So when he and Hella, his wife, came to Australia, he did what people of that generation and that upbringing did, which was he invested so that his grandchildren and great-grandchildren and so forth would have safety, something that their family had lost. They were entirely wiped out in the Shoah. And that meant financial security for, for him? For him it meant financial security. And, of course, that was a tremendous gift to us to be able to own a place to live, for example. And as I, after I lost my parents and I realised, as many of us do, that we're then that elder generation, I similarly thought, well, what does it mean for me to take on that responsibility of care for future generations? And in our context, it doesn't mean financial stability, so according to my lights, it meant the nurturing of a place where there would be water and where there would be food, not only for my biological family but for others, human and non-human, to flourish. And so we started to look for a place where that could happen. So that was the first stream of the reason. But the other stream of the reason was I had worked all my life as a human rights activist and as a human rights scholar and in the years preceding our move, I had begun to think about justice beyond the human, that humans are earth beings along with other earth beings, plants and animals and rivers and forests, mountains, and started to form this area with my colleagues that we call multi-species justice, justice for all earth beings. But I'm a materialist and what I mean by that is I don't think that we transform ourselves by deciding that we're going to transform ourselves. I think we transform ourselves by changing the ways that we live. And I really wanted to become a different person. I wanted to become a different person whose primary experience was a commitment to the well-being of all earth beings. And I thought the only way that I could do that was to live cheek to jowl with other beings. It's a very intellectual approach. It's it, very, well, I mean, it, it, it sounds like, oh, I'm moving to the country because it's pretty would be, uh, would be the, the thing that would animate most people. But it was really that kind of a decision. The, yes, that I wanted to reform myself. And I hypothesised, I thought, well, if I place myself amongst other beings who literally call out to me every day, whether it's the animals calling out because they want to be fed or it's the forest that when you look at it, 
the enormity of life there calls you into a different being. And so I placed myself, I often think about me, about about it as curating a type of experience. So I wanted to curate myself into a different way of being and it certainly worked. When you live in the city, you're somewhat conscious of nature. Australian cities are pretty good like that, but, it, you know, that might just be a couple of minor birds in the morning or something like that or, I don't know, the, the, the hedge being trimmed, the, the, the nature strip being trimmed by the council or something like that. So you really wanted to be in a place where animals and creatures were around you all the time reminding you of their existence? Is that it? I wanted to change the balance of power, really. I mean, we dominate in cities. Absolutely, you're right, Richard. You can, if you bring those arts of attention, notice how much more than human life there is in the city. But I have a very strong memory of I'd lived, I'd lived in the valley for a couple of years and I was coming back to meet a colleague for coffee in Redfern and I was sitting uh, on the sidewalk waiting for him. And I remember seeing a tree growing in the concrete and feeling how lonely that tree must be and what it was like to be surrounded by concrete if you were a living being. Whereas it's completely flipped around, like we're the strangers in the country. We're the minority in the country. We're so surrounded by other beings that it gives you a sense of really your lack of importance in the universe. <laughs> and in a universe where humans, at least humans from our culture, have convinced ourselves that we are the most important thing around. So in the natural <laughs> world, humans are a bit like that intruder at a party who shows up, scoops up all the finger food, eats it, uh, talks too loud and then vomits in the corner and falls asleep or and, something like that. And you didn't want to be that person. In other and, words. Trashes the, and, and trashes, trashes the, the joint. joint. <laughs> That's it. So you didn't want to be that person. So the place you live in in Kangaroo Valley now is in a high valley, I think you say. Can you describe what you see when you look out your window on a nice day? It's like being in the arms of a remarkable mother. So there are escarpments or cliff faces very close on the east and on the west, a little bit further to the north and quite a long way to the south. So the escarpments are wrapped around you. And then particularly at the moment, after two and three quarter years of extraordinary rain, the forest is dense and it's such a variety of greens. You know, you think, oh, trees are green, but trees, trees are so many greens. So there are these layerings of different rainforest trees. And then just myriad forms of life, all sorts of birds and wombats. And, you know, often I'll look out the window and I'll see a wombat or an echidna. And of course, the uh, the animal family with whom we live, you know, I'll inevitably look out and see the donkeys whose house is just underneath my window or the pigs off to a distance. So I see a lot of other people. They're just not human people. <laughs> I mentioned there how you decided, you pretty much decided when you arrived there that you wanted to live and die there. Can you talk a bit about the impact the property had on you when you went to see it for the first time? It was a funny story because we had decided that we wanted to find a place up there to make our home. And the first time that we went there, I had been told by a real estate friend of mine not to be too enthusiastic. So I was trying to play it cool. Right. And every time the real estate agent turned his back, I would jump up and down like a two-year-old, <laughs> extremely excited. And of course, I'm sure I didn't, uh, I didn't surprise him at all. The property at the time was uh, people people rented out for the weekend, so we asked if we could rent it before for the weekend before we bid on it. And that weekend we decided that we wanted to walk as much of the land as we could to actually have our feet in the earth and feel what it was like. And it was when we walked up to a part of the land which is high up, you climb a hill and then you're very close to the escarpments and it started to rain and I turned to my partner and I said, this is where I want to die. You've been there for four years now? Five, no, no, longer. no, about seven years. About seven years. Sorry, bad maths in my head here. Did you find after you moved there that way of thinking you were looking for, that change you wanted in yourself was able to sort of slowly evolve in you? Absolutely. So we can have ethical principles or ethical commitments, but if we have a 
primary orientation in the world. So say, for example, your primary orientation is to people of the same religion as you, but you have a principle that you ought to be good and nice to people of other religions. When push comes to shove, hopefully that principle will come into play, but more likely than not, you're still going to lean into those with whom you identify. And so profound transformation is when you're actually reconstituted so that you care about all people equally. And that's the transformation that I feel like I've been through. So when people talk about the primary responsibility that humans have to other humans, I I fully understand that that's the way things work in our culture, but that's actually not how it occurs to me anymore. These other beings have a purchase on me which I don't have to apply to myself. I don't have to say, okay, well, Danny, you embrace the principle of equality of all beings. It actually just shows up that way for me. It's a big ask, isn't it? I mean, it's really, it's a lot to actually ask for people to extend their compassion to other human beings. Uh, it's quite a, quite a big ask to get them to do that. To get them to extend their field of compassion to the whole of nature's seems like a much harder ask, or isn't it? Well, against the background of a culture that, is founded on human exceptionalism and the exploitation of the earth and other animals. Yes, it is very difficult. I don't think it's impossible. And we're in this really exciting moment of knowledge production at the moment where we're learning so much more about the capacities of other animals, even other trees and fungi and soil. And we're also learning, and I think this is the very important piece, that human beings actually aren't separate. You know, for example, uh, our emotional state is completely dependent on having a healthy gut microbiome or our capacity to live is completely dependent on having uh, healthy forests and ecosystems. Look at the pandemic. I mean, we now understand that the pandemic was produced through the incursion into ecosystems and the collapse of ecosystems and and, and industrial animal agriculture. So the idea that we can be well, that humans can be well, that humans can flourish and we can trash the place, as you said before, we've coming to understand that that's a mythical story that is no longer sustainable. Particularly for city dwellers. We, we, you know, we think of ourselves as people who live in human land and we might on the weekend go to nature land. That's right. And, yeah. and we don't understand that actually what we do during the week, the cars that we drive, the energy that we consume, has a day-to-day impact on the possibility of the existence of nature land. You've got pigs and donkeys on your land... Now, pigs are supposed to be filthy and donkeys are supposed to be stubborn. How true are those stereotypes, Danny? You know, it's so remarkable. A couple of days I was chatting to someone who is on the land and I was talking about, I was leading one of the donkeys and I was talking about how uh, this, this donkey has spent his life living with horses. His name's Gabriel. So I call him my trans donkey because he doesn't actually think he's a donkey. He thinks he's a horse. (laughs) But I walk him over every day to spend time with the donkeys because they can't be on sweet grass all day. It's very bad for their feet. But when I walk him over, I always have to have a conversation about it because he doesn't want to go and I have to explain why I'm doing it. And then he'll eventually walk over with me. And this bloke who was on the land said, stubborn as a mule. And it struck me how we, I, I, you know, this lovely man, I didn't want to say anything rude back to him, but I thought, yep, and mimics like a human. We mimic, we mimic these tropes that we've heard and we don't actually go, "Mm, where does that come from? Like, is there any foundation for that knowledge that would have me believe it and continue to reiterate it? I mean, there there are traits of species certain species are more likely to embody, but they're also individuals. I mean, they're individuals like humans are. And pigs love mud because they're really smart, right? So particularly light-coloured pigs, they get sunburnt. They can't go to the pharmacy and buy (laughs) sunscreen. So what did they do? 
they cover themselves in mud to and stop themselves cool, getting bent. And mud is yeah, cool. Yeah. yeah. I actually had a wonderful interaction with Jimmy once where he got this into Jimmy his... Jimmy the pig. Jimmy it? the pig, I'm sorry. Where he got into his mud bath and he came up and he put mud on my arm and he looked at me and I had the distinct feeling he was saying, hey, girlfriend, this is like a really good way to protect your light skin. Hey, you pale-skinned <laughs> fool. Why aren't you covered in mud? No, no, he was much he was much more benevolent than that. <laughs> yeah, so this brings me to the two pigs, Jimmy and Katie, that had come to live on your property. How did they come to live with you, Danielle? So there's a bit of a, I guess, sanctuary network. So people come to know about other people who will give sanctuary to animals. And someone found out that we did that and sent me an email and said, there are a couple of pigs that need a home. Will you take them? And I, I never had anything to do with the pigs before. But, of course, this was a moment of tremendous excitement for me. And I said to my ever-generous partner, do you think we could bring a couple of pigs to live here? And he said, I don't see why not. And so Jimmy and Katie had been rescued. They they were what was called wastage pigs. So for some reason, piglets that were thrown onto the factory farm floor to be killed or not to be allowed to live. But they had been rescued by activists. And then this woman, Em, who I call in the book, had brought them up for the first four years of their lives but she had uh, experienced a marriage breakdown and was not able to keep them and was looking for a home. And so Jimmy and Katie, at four years old, came to live with us. And how attached were they to each other? You know, they had spent every single moment of their life together. Were they siblings? They were brother and sister, yes. And how were they in their behaviour towards you after having had this kind of slightly terrifying early life? They had been brought up with a huge amount of love after that. Uh, They were a little wary of us at first because they'd been taken away from the human being who had been their mother equivalent. Jimmy was a very easygoing, friendly guy. I used to think that if he had a human voice, he would have been like a California surfer. He was very chill. Katie was much more anxious and much more nervous and... She used to stand in front of me and look back at me. I think they call it sideways, you know, when when an animal kind of looks at you from behind. So I started a practice of going and reading with her. What do you mean? Well, I would take my academic books or I'd print out an academic paper, particularly if I was (laughs) reading. I I know you're laughing at me. This is, again, a very intellectual approach. Oh, it's delightful. But I would print out an academic paper if I was reading about animals, violence against animals, animal rights and so on. And I would go and I would take a blanket and a pen and I would go into their area and I would sit down and I would read my paper and Katie would come and sit with me. And I would often, you know, if I was in the shade, I would lie my head on her very big belly and we and I started to call it reading with Katie. I'm only laughing out of recognition. I, I, the books I've written, I've, I've always been able to find someone who I can get to sit still as a member of my family so I can read to them. And so, because reading your work out, writing out loud, it always improves <clears> it. And I've just run out of people who are prepared to sit still and oh, listen to Oh, you need a pig. I need a pig in my life. <laughs> that's, that's very clear now. This kind of sudden flood of revelation has come across my mind now. As the weather changed or got hotter and drier, how did the land change as record summer temperatures were being recorded at the end of the last decade? We live in a rainforest and rainforests are tremendously lush, damp, steamy places. Squishy. Squishy, exactly. So I was watching the temperatures and I was feeling the temperatures and I was watching the trees going brown. But when I really got it was when I was walking through the rainforest because normally when you walk through the rainforest, you sink a little bit into the hummus of the ground. But my boot would hit against the ground and there was no give in the earth. And that was a very literal metaphor for me. It was as if the earth had nothing left to give. 
And then we started to see there are lots of lyrebirds where we live. Lyrebirds are very shy, but increasingly you would see the lyrebirds on the road because they would be out looking for water. So all of the creatures, not just the human creatures, were responding to the desiccation of the land. And already in April 2019, people had been warning about the fires. You know, I look back now, 20, uh, hindsight is always 2020 vision. I didn't really want to listen to what people were saying because, firstly, I didn't want it to happen, but also I lived in the illusion that it couldn't happen to us because rainforests never burn, right? Um, and so we weren't going to burn. It might happen to someone else, sometime else, some, somewhere else, but it was going to happen to us. So, yes, I knew it was dry, but I didn't think that the fires would actually come to our door. Did the Rural Fire Service pay you a visit, give you advice on how to prepare in case a fire did come? Yes, so the Rural Service, Rural Fire Service and the emergency services came, but they came to tell us that they wouldn't come to us because we live at the end of a dead-end road. And so, quite rightly, for their own protection, they won't come to the end of a dead-end road because there's no way out. So if the fire comes up, they can't get out. So they came to talk to us about how to prepare. And, of course, for, from their perspective, it was very important for people to leave because they didn't want to be in the position where they were leaving people to burn to death. Well, how did you react when they said, if the fires come or when the fires come, we won't be able to help you? Quite soberly, actually. I wasn't, I wasn't shocked. It made sense to me. What that meant was that we there was there was never any chance of us staying and defending. In fact, quite early on in the fires, I remember sitting down with all the information on what you do in the event of the fire with my partner, who's Canadian, and he said, oh, well, we should stay and defend. And I said, you're Canadian. You don't stay and defend against a fire in Australia. And, of course, we didn't know what sort of fire it was going to be. We've never experienced fires like this. So I was very clear from the beginning that if the fire came anywhere near us, we were going to leave. We're completely surrounded by forest. What changed was I had thought that the domesticated animals would be able to stay. I had thought that there was enough place for them to run, for them to be able to be safe. You mean enough cleared spaces <clears throat> Enough on the cleared spaces that we oh. could, you know, take down fences. And we, we cleared a lot of the land so that there were safer places for them. But as the information about what was happening elsewhere started to come in, I understood that animals weren't just dying because they were burnt to death. They were dying because where there was masses of forest around them that were on fire, it was taking all the oxygen out of the air and so they would asphyxiate. So even if they could get away, had the fire surrounded the land or come onto the land and they had been there, they likely would have died from lack of oxygen. So then came the day, as I said, where the temperature gauge read that it was 46 and a half degrees in the shade. You know, I lived through Adelaide summers and you'd get like a week where it was 40, 41, 42, I think, and I'm talking here the 1970s. 46 in New South Wales, in, in what is actually quite normally a, a cooler part of the country. It just seems unfathomable to me. What did you think when you saw I didn't reading? believe it. I mean, it was particularly shocking because it's always five degrees cooler at our place than it is in town, just 14 kilometres away. So I had an expectation that, yes, it would get hot, but it wouldn't ever go above 41 degrees maximum. And so I just didn't believe the temperature gauge and I moved it into the shade to remeasure it, but it was indeed 46 and a half degrees. What was the sky looking like that day? In the morning, there was an illusion of peace, an illusion that things weren't going to be that bad. And then things would always get worse during the day and because the winds come up in the afternoon. And by around the middle of the day, the skies would be the colour of a bruise. The, uh, this, this weird 
black-orange colour, depending on how close the fires were. But there was always a haze in the sky. So the colours were weirdly muted. And I, I hate to speak about anything being aesthetically beautiful, which was so morally horrific. But there was a strange, eerie beauty to the colours as well because they were always refracted through this very thick atmosphere. A monstrous beauty. A monstrous beauty, yes. Did it look like a storm cloud at one point? It did. So there and was. You must have thought, oh well, I'm just, well that that's great. Rain, a, rain a, is on the way. Absolutely. I mean, there was one day where there had been terrible fires to the south, and all of the fire near me apps were red and cat- catastrophe emergency. And then at around four thirty. Uh, we heard that the fire had gone down and had turned. And I looked to the south and I remember seeing a very huge dark cloud and my body responded with relief. And then I realised that it was a pyrocumulus cloud. It was one of the clouds which is formed by a fire. And those are the most dangerous clouds because they carry lightning and they light fires up ahead of where the fire is. Black clouds that start can start a fire, they don't douse them. They're like demonic clouds. And what's demonic about it is that your body gets seduced by what we know clouds to be, which is the carriers of water and rain and relief. And then when your body catches up with your mind, you realise that you've been seduced into a story of hope which actually isn't there. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. As we were watching these things develop, even in the cities, there was this awful little... Nugget of dread. Mm-hmm. I think most of us had, and it would have been much worse for you. Mm. What were you doing with that knot of dread in your stomach? I was acting. <laughs> I, I I stayed in action. It, there was a tremendous amount to do. So when we decided on the night of the twenty seventh of December that all of the animals needed to be evacuated, and they went to different places around us. That was a huge amount of work to have to drive to where they are, to feed them, to clean them, to get them water, to empty the house, uh, to get the sprinklers set up around the house, to help people around me. So I pretty much stayed in action all the time, which is something that I think some of us do to forestall just being overwhelmed by the feelings of dread. And how about Jimmy and Katie, the pigs? It was relatively easy thanks to the generosity of community to find somewhere for the horses and the donkeys and the goats and the ducks and so on to go. But people like I was are relatively unfamiliar with pigs and so I called M, the woman who had been their first carer, and she picked up the phone and she said, I was expecting your call, I'll be there tomorrow or the day after I'll be there to get them. So she drove up to collect them and take them home. But home was Cabago. And then that brings us to the morning of New Year's Eve 2019. What was that morning like? Did it get hot really early that day? Around 6, 7, it was still, well, relatively, I mean, but probably in the 30s already. So we had emptied the house the night before into a truck And my partner had left at about five o'clock in the morning to drive to Sydney with our belongings. So I was was there by myself and I was anticipating all, all of the domesticated animals had gone. Of course, the wild animals were still there. And I was anticipating that we would probably evacuate that day because we knew it was going to be a catastrophic fire day. And I went out to roll the gas bottles 
away from the house, which is one of the things you do because if the fire comes, you don't want a gas bottle exploding right next to your house. And very unusually for me, I left my phone inside on the floor in the empty house. Uh, My phone, I used to call it my prosthetic. It was tied to my hand because I was constantly watching the fires near me app or a Facebook group or listening to the news. And I saw that there was a missed call from M, and I called her back and she picked up the phone and she said, it's all gone. It's all gone. What was all gone? Her house, the animals, her life. I mean, she had survived, but everything that had made her life. You know, she'd literally just survived the fire. She had been inside the garage when the garage caught on fire and her partner had dragged her out and they had very narrowly survived. And she told me that Jimmy and Katie were dead. So you went into the nearby town to get some supplies and batteries for your torches because you needed torches in the middle of the day at that time. What did you see when you went into that touristy, nice town nearby? I saw summer in Australia. I saw people sitting in sidewalk cafes, drinking lattes and parents with their kids walking down the street, eating gelatos and chatting and having a good time. And I saw myself in another summer, in another town. You would have done that once yourself? I would have done that once myself, you know, just having a good time, enjoying summer was, from their perspective, was a beautiful day. But there's catastrophic Uh, bushfires everywhere uh, and nearby. What? That just seems... What, how did that strike you it at was, the time? It was incomprehensible, the juxtaposition of the trauma that we were experiencing and so many people were experiencing. And remember, New Year's Eve, the 31st of December, was one of the two worst catastrophic fire days of those black summer fires in southern New South Wales. So entire towns were being burnt. It was surreal, Richard. It was as if I was living in one universe, but my body had been placed in another universe and looking through a thick glass pane where I couldn't communicate with or comprehend what was going on on the other side of the glass. And yet there it was, my fellow Australians, living this completely disconnected life. Once you got through your incredulity, were you angry? I was enraged and I was in despair. One of the experiences that I had during the fires was of the inadequacy of the words that we use to describe our emotions, that we tend to have words that are singular. You know, you either feel anger or you feel loss or you feel grief. But often, and that was one of those occasions, I felt this hybrid of those emotions simultaneously but the dominant emotion was rage. And yet you said you would have been one of those people not so long before. Yes, and that was part of the, the confusion and, and the realisation of the moral complexity of what was going on. You said you're the daughter of Jewish refugees to Australia. Was the Holocaust in the back of your mind? Hugely. And... In the back of my mind, but in a way that wasn't necessarily made explicit to me until after the fires. It was a few weeks after the fires and I remember very well I was standing in one of the fields feeling a sense of profound brokenness and I called the woman who had been my analyst for a number of years who I hadn't spoken to for a while and I said, I I really need to speak to you. I'm... I don't know how to reconstitute myself after what I've experienced. And I remember the conversation with the poignancy that one remembers absolute truths in your life. I said to her, I didn't know that everything could fall apart. And she said, yes, you did. And when she said, yes, you did, it was as if my whole body could see clearly that what I had experienced was not cognition, it was recognition, that there was a way in which 
at a cellular level, you know, I was brought up with the stories of, of my aunt being murdered when she was 12. And previous to that, life had been fine. Life had been fine. My, mm. my, my father's family were a family of doctors of law and lawyers and my mother's family a family of bankers, you know, living a perfectly good life in Poland. And they didn't think that life could fall apart. And so because I was their child and grandchild, the, the stories that I'd been brought up on were those stories of a shattering of a world. And so even though when we were going through the fires, I wasn't constantly thinking about the Holocaust, when my analyst made that connection for me, I understood that there was a deep knowing that I had about the fragility of the world. There was a little voice that you could barely hear or not even hear saying, oh, God, here we go again. Yes, but even worse. So on that day when you'd gone into town to get batteries for your torch so you could see around the place in the middle of the day, you got back and that was when you decided to leave, get out of town. What was the sky like then when you left with your partner? Oh, it was so when uh, when Leonard came back because he drove to Sydney, unloaded the truck, drove back and I said, we have to leave. And he was exhausted and then it about, was about three o'clock in the afternoon, it, it got dark. And he said, OK, we'll leave. <laughs> what were you seeing on the road as you were hightailing it out of there and heading towards Sydney? No one other than fire trucks heading south. So the road was eerily empty, but there was just fire truck after fire truck heading south to where the fires were. And you could see on the front of the fire trucks the names of the communities that they came from, and many of them came from the central coast or further north. And when you got to Sydney, what was going on in Sydney? It was the fireworks, Richard. It was New Year's Eve. I only, I only just realised this now. So when I was a little girl, my mother and her best friend used to take my brother and me and, and the best friend's three children to the Royal Easter Show every year on a Thursday afternoon. And we would gather and watch the fireworks in the evening. And my mother hated the fireworks because they reminded her of the war. She was a child during the war. You know, being a happy-go-lucky, relatively happy-go-lucky child that I was, it didn't really occur to me what that experience was for her until that night when I was lying in bed listening to the fireworks going off in Sydney with a singular horror that, I mean, the irony of it, fireworks. The state was on fire and yet we were celebrating by creating coloured fire in the air. So with all that rage and horror in you, could you give voice to it at the time or could you, did you just have to keep stum? No. So when I got home from town before Leonard returned home, I sat down and I, I did what I do, which is write. I sat down and I wrote a piece called The Two Australias, which was about my confrontation with these simultaneous realities that I had seen unfolding in front of me. And writing, you know, there's a wonderful... One of my favourite philosophers was a woman called Hannah Arendt and she did an interview in 1964 with a German television host called Gunter Gauss and he said to her... Do you write so that you can convince people? And she says, that is a very masculine question. <laughs> <laughs> I write so that I can understand. And if other people understand as a result of that, then that's all the better. And in the first instance, I was writing so that I could understand. I was writing my way through this perplexity and incomprehension that I felt. But then I was also writing because I wanted to reach out to the whole of Australia and say, we feel abandoned. When we, when we see you drinking lattes in town and we see you letting off fireworks, we feel like you've turned your back on us. Please don't turn your back on us. We are all here together. And I have the fortune to be friendly with uh, another one of your colleagues, Richard Scott Stevens, who 
other than being one of the co-hosts of the Minefield, also runs the Religion and Ethics website. And I wrote Scott an email and I said, I've got a piece, can I send it to you? And so I wrote it in a storm. I just sat down and I wrote it and I sent it to him. So while you're in Sydney, were you glued to the, the app, watching it get closer to your own property, watching the fires encroach upon you? At, at that point, the Fires Near Me app were relatively inaccurate when it came to that type of proximity of prediction. They were always a little bit behind. So I had a whole range of sources of information, the local fire, the local fire services. We had a friend who worked there, the local Facebook groups. There Twitter, was lots I suppose, of, yeah. yeah. Twitter. So there was lots of information circulating amongst communities. But we went to bed not knowing whether the fire had come to our place or not because it did cross the Shoalhaven River that day and it came north and then it was a question of which which direction was the wind going to go on. If it was going to be a westerly, we would be burnt. If it was an easterly, the fire would then move towards the west. And what happened? I say this with such ambivalence because our, our blessing was someone else's curse the fire crossed the Shoalhaven River, came into the south of the Kangaroo Valley and then the wind changed direction and it moved up to the highlands and it didn't come to our place. How long was it before you could get back to your, your, your land? We drove back the next morning. Was that strange? It was very strange because there was a sense of could have been. And also it was strange to have been far away you know, when you feel attached to a place the way that we feel attached to our home and to the beings with whom we share that home, you can imagine leaving your family during a time of grave threat. You don't really want to do that. But I had promised my daughter that if it became dangerous that we would leave. And so when we left, actually every time we left there was a profound sense of saying goodbye to someone that I loved and then to return and they were still there was both a sense of relief but also it wasn't over yet, right? We, You know, this was just one catastrophic fire day. So I was never moving back into a sense of, oh, I'm home, right, it's okay now. It was always just a temporary breather. The two pigs, uh, Jimmy and Katie, who had been sent down to your friend in Cabargo, and she told you they they both died. What was the reality there with those two pigs? So Em had found Katie's body close to the house but had not found Jimmy and had assumed that, like everybody else and everything else, he had been burnt to death. The next afternoon, so late in the afternoon on the 1st, I got a text from her that said, I found Jimmy and my heart sank thinking she's found Jimmy's body. You know, those three dots that can all either be the three dots of hope or three dots of dread. Of the next text coming. Of the next text coming. And what came in was a very granular video that she had taken of Jimmy blackened but running out towards her with her beautiful, loving voice saying, I know... I know, and Jimmy had survived. How was he when he got back to you? So we were not able to collect him for a week because the roads were closed and only emergency vehicles were allowed down there. But Em was very clear that he needed to leave there because of the trauma, but also there were no fences. And so we went down to collect him and he was he was a different pig. He was out of his body in a way. So when he heard us, we had to call him. He was a long way away and he came and he didn't walk right up to us. He walked parallel to us about 10 metres away. We managed to get him into the float and it was a terrible trip home. It was four and a half hours in this extreme heat and he was very unwell. We didn't know that he would survive the trip. When he got home, we let him out into his area and I experienced a very rare joy. He went over to his mud bath and he lowered his huge hot body into the mud bath and he covered himself with water and mud. You can imagine it's like the first real cool 
that he had experienced and in his own home. But the next morning when we went to give him breakfast, he was again out of himself. He started to look around and to smell and he was very agitated. And I had the sense that what had happened was it was the first night that he had spent back home without Katie. He'd slept without Katie. His sister. His sister. And he realised what had happened to him and that she was not there. So I think he had been hypervigilant in the days after the fire. You know, the fire could come. The fire had come early in the morning, remember, on in Cabago. And he would have just been living his life and then suddenly everything went dark and fires, bushfires like that are incredibly loud. It's like being underneath a train. So the whole world became cataclysmic out of nowhere. And so I imagine that he must have been in this state of anticipating that that could happen again any minute. And when he came home, he had been able to rest enough to actually take in what had happened And he stopped. He stopped eating. He stopped drinking. He was clearly in a very deep state of distress. But he he was an extraordinarily creative and uh, intelligent being. And in the place that they live, he had built himself nests. He was, I think about Jimmy as this great engineer and architect. He had built all sorts of places to lie that were cool at different times of the day or got sun at different times of the day. And so he would take himself to these nests that he'd built himself on the earth and he would lie and he didn't eat or drink. I mean, he drank, he must have drunk a little bit, but for about seven or eight days. What was the matter with him, do you think? Sometimes people have asked me whether I thought it was psychological or physical and I think we divide the world up that way but I think it was an integrated trauma. So his body had been obviously been through just enormous trauma of being that close to the fire. And the absence of his sister? And the, gr- and the grief of the loss. Because we know animals grieve now. We do know that. We see it. We see it happen all the time. Absolutely. I have seen it many times and grieve in ways that are instructive for us as well because of the depth and the complexity of the grief. So I think it was a combination of trauma, loss, grief, fear that he was experiencing. And did this period of grief end? Did he rouse himself again? It was a learning experience for me because... (laughs) You know, my parents, as children of the Holocaust, were very overprotective, as their parents were to them. And were you fussing over him? I was totally. You know, I had (laughs) wet towels and I was cooking all sorts of food for him. I mean, I was like my mother and my grandmother, as was Leonard, I have to say. But he made it clear that he actually needed to do this by himself. And so occasionally he would let us sit with him, but then he would take himself off and often face away from us and lie on the cool earth. And I I learnt to respect him that he was... Firstly, he was probably deciding whether he wanted to live or not, but also he was finding his way out of this. And he would take from us what he wanted to take and what he felt he needed to take. And eventually he did. Eventually he started eating and he started drinking and he started to go back into his mud bath, which was like a redemption for us. I mean, nothing was going to take away the trauma or the loss of Katie, but that he decided to live just felt like an extraordinary gift. I don't want to give any sense of a happy ending here, but it must have been a a beautiful relief to see the rains finally come. I I cannot put into words what that wet moisture felt like on your body. You know, we, we learn in our culture to go inside when it rains, uh, but we, of course, couldn't get enough City of people the... do, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think country people run outside, don't they? Uh, well, we certainly yeah. did then and we couldn't get enough of the rain and it wasn't it, because a little bit of rain wouldn't have been enough. It needed to be a lot of rain. Oh, and you've had a lot of rain. 
Oh, we have had a lot of rain. Now, how much rain are we talking about? Like, uh, like, like, how's it changed the property, the rain you've had in the last uh, year or so? So I think we're over three metres of rain this oh, year. <laughs> but there was one rain event in June where we had 970 mils. It's about a metre or three feet of rain in four days. Were you flooded? So because our land is very steep, uh, it doesn't right, flood. But, right. but what we get is landslides, huge landslides. So right. we've got huge landslides on our on our land and our road was cut off. Do you hear them sometimes, landslides? I did. I did. On that particular occasion, I heard a huge landslide. I was out digging the road. You know, who knew that a professor from the University of Sydney would end up digging roads, but that's what I've been doing the last couple of years. I should make all... It's like it's like Maoism. They should get you all making roads for a couple of years or I something. I think it probably would It would probably give us a sense of it's how... cultural revolution. Uh, uh, also, it would give a, a, a sense of that we do have bodies and we do live on the earth. Uh, but I heard this huge landslide and I remember thinking, oh, my God, where is that and what is that? Because the bush is so thick around us, I've never seen it, so I don't know where it was. But there was one right on our land. What does it sound like? It sounds like... You know those films like Coyanus Quatsi where you have buildings falling down? That's what it sounds like. So is there give again in the land? There is, is. there a squishiness to the land and the rainforest? A little, bit, little bit more than give, more like sink. <laughs> so, the, the, I mean, it's drying out again now, which is a, a source of uh, great fear for, for many of us. But during the two years of rain... As soon as it would rain again, the earth would just turn to mud. So uh, where Jimmy is no longer with us, but where Penny and Badger, the two pigs with whom we live, where they live, it was just a river. The, the, the rain just created new rivers all over the land. So now we're regularly getting these natural catastrophes. I mean, it's often said that Australia is a land of fire and drought and flooding rain, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, but... Uh... These events have been at a scale that go beyond all records that we have for them. Where have you ended up on this? The fires changed me tremendously, Richard. I've always been a, a pretty determined person, but I feel very one-minded now that, yes, of course, there are a tremendous number of injustices and forms of violence in the world... But if we don't pay attention to this one, if we don't bring humanity, Australians, if we don't bring everything to facing what we're facing and completely transforming our energy systems, our economic systems, our cultural systems, then nothing else is really going to matter. Great to speak with you, Danielle. Thank you so much. Thank you. Podcast, broadcast, you're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Daniel Silomaya's book is called Summertime, Reflections on a Vanishing Future. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.